following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Matthew 1, beginning at 18. Please follow along. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's holy word. It's amazing to realize that in the rare plan of God for Jesus Christ to be supernaturally born into human flesh by what we correctly should call a virgin conception, God himself nearly caused one first century marriage to be ruined before it even got underway. But then, of course, the Holy Spirit intervened to save the betrothal and marriage ceremony of Mary to Joseph, this carpenter, from Nazareth. And the result, we well know, was that on that first Christmas, a secure two-parent home was established into which Jesus could be born and he could mature and grow into young manhood for years to come. The Bible certainly elevates and showcases the importance of marriage. And I believe it does it here in a unique and remarkable way by giving us a premier marriage that we can look to as a model for certain things for all time. The marriage story of the Bible opens in the Garden of Eden with God arranging that a man and a woman should come together and be called that one flesh mystery that is talked about, not merely describing a sexual union, but a union of mind and spirit and heart. And interestingly, you go all the way to the second last chapter of the Bible, the chapter of Revelation 21, and you have a marriage. It's the marriage of Christ, the bridegroom, coming for his bride 
the church in the future day. And the line of progress of developing the topic of marriage through the Bible in many different ways has God emphasizing both by positive examples sometimes and by very negative examples other times that marriage was his grand idea and his action at all times established for the welfare and happiness of men and women. Scripture defines marriage as a lifelong faithful covenant between a man and a woman. This is a relation intended to model the loving work of God himself in coming through Christ to save his church. It's also a living laboratory for a man and a woman to see their character being refined and shaped and changed through testing and difficulties and sufferings and mutual interaction. And it's the creation of a safe sanctuary for the birth and nurture of children. Two persons of the opposite sex bound into a dynamic union where they are challenged to grow and change. There's no relationship between any two human beings of any greater importance than marriage. Paul wrote of it in Ephesians 5, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold on fast to his wife, forsaking all others. These two shall become one flesh. And then he added, not incidentally, I say this of Christ and the church. He was saying that the marriage relationship literally models the kind of action that Christ himself took for his bride, believers of all time, called the church. The high ideal for marriage is this imitation of a sacrificial servant attitude that Jesus showed himself in his life toward us. He sacrificed himself. He laid down his life. And Paul is implying that in a godly marriage, a God-led marriage, we are to do the same. Now, it's strange that since God obviously has high ideals for marriage, very ironically then, it was God's doing the conception of Jesus by a miracle, by a virgin conception in Mary, that her marriage to Joseph was nearly ruined. It almost didn't happen at all. An illegal divorce almost occurred, caused by the virgin conception, such that God's own intervention was required in order to put the thing back on track. Our heavenly Father gave the world a Christmas present when he restored the marriage of Joseph and Mary, showing us and featuring in this marriage some things we need to learn. First of all, today, if you look at Matthew 1, 18 and 19, you'd see this obvious fact that the virgin conception of Jesus almost triggered a divorce. During their betrothal, we read, before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we have the understanding that Joseph didn't have. You see, we actually have the advantage over Joseph. Mary knows the source of this pregnancy. It has been revealed to her by angelic announcement told in the early chapters of Luke, not, not told here in Matthew, but in Luke. 
Joseph doesn't know yet, except that she has somehow conveyed to him, Joseph, I'm expecting a child. And let me tell you this amazing thing that was made known to me. Joseph had that said to him somehow. Certainly Mary got him aside and explained it. We're not given that conversation, but it had to have happened. And he didn't believe her. Well, what man would have? Really, ask yourself. The woman you love says, I'm with child, and it was God. You're going to be scratching your head quite a while before you accept that one. And so Joseph acted as almost any man would. You know, of course, that there's great pessimism about marriage in our society today. Socially speaking, at least, the institution has changed a great deal in our country and worldwide, for that matter. In 1960, I have a statistic that 72% of all American adults were married. Today, about 50% of all American adults are married. Now, that is not exalting marriage so as to say that the single state is a bad estate in which to live. Not at all. We're simply talking about a change in marriage from 72% to 50%. That's quite a change. Maybe some of you grew up like I did in an American suburban community where I cannot remember other than one household of a friend or acquaintance of mine right through my teen years that was a one-parent household. All my friends, all the people I spent time with, played baseball with, hung out with, all were from two-parent homes. And you know how different that would be today. Many today scorn marriage and say, I don't need a piece of paper to prove anything. And so living together is now the norm. Check out sometime. If you never read the marriage licenses being granted, you know, some of you I know do this, but you, you look at that, it maybe doesn't make the most interesting reading unless you're looking for someone you know. But it will say, you know, Jane Jones and Robert Smith got married and it will give the address of each one. Take a look at how many of them say for the second person, same address. It's pretty telling that folks are already living together before they get married. Fifty years ago, that was almost unheard of. Fifty years ago, there was the idea that, biblically speaking, the biblical principle at least was established to some extent within society, despite your religion, that said sexuality belongs within heterosexual marriage. Now, certainly there are many violations of that. Of course, we're not naive. But that principle was a principle of strong social glue. And that's now nearly shattered. Every once in a while, I have to quote somebody from the younger generation, just so Walt Mueller will know I'm really in touch with things. But I read a quote from Chris Rock, who said, uh, asked a mocking question and said, Do you want to be single and lonely? or married and bored. That's how people think of marriage today. And of course, divorce has increased greatly as an end to marriage once held to be a stigma. Once there were people, and it isn't always good that people stay together just because they're afraid to to part, but many people stayed together and worked somehow on a marriage simply because they couldn't deal with the shame or the stigma that society would send their way, whereas today we've made it pretty easy to get out the back door. But divorce has been around a long time. It didn't just suddenly originate. 
It's been around many, many centuries, and it was around in Jesus' day. And to understand Matthew 1, we need to know about the unique custom that is here in first century Judaism. You've heard this before, so I won't dwell on it too long, but it was different than what we have now. Today, you get engaged, and if people change their mind, oh, here's the ring back, sorry, I'm going to go find somebody else. And people's feelings are hurt, but not much happens. Well, quite different in a day when girls were married as young as 14, 15, very commonly. Boys would usually be older teenagers or perhaps early 20s. They normally would have their career and livelihood established sometimes so they could provide a living. And they would enter in with parents' involvement to a formal contract of engagement. It was called the Kiddushan. And it lasted a varying period of months. It could be at least usually a couple of months, maybe as long as a year or more, depending on circumstances. The Kiddushan was a contract drawn up, and in order, once it was in, in effect, the couple did not live together. They were betrothed or engaged. They did not have sexual relations. They did not occupy the same house, but contractually, they were married. And to leave that contract required a writ of divorce. That's how serious it was taken. Later on, a wedding ceremony would happen, and of course, they would then live together and the marriage would be consummated. But if someone was blamed for infidelity in the midst of that period, in the Old Testament, it was a real serious business. If you went to the ultimate penalty in the Old Testament, infidelity during the Kiddushan could bring stoning. Now, that did not happen in the New Testament age. That penalty had pretty much been laid aside. But nevertheless, for someone like Mary, a young teenager, if she was shamed by this and blamed for being with a man other than her intended and so on, she probably would not be marriageable very easily again. And that was a big problem economically because without a husband in that society, who would provide for you in your middle years or your old age, if not your son or some other relative? So consider the position of Joseph. He's a devout man. He worships God. He values God's law. He's also, we're informed, a compassionate man. He wanted to be kind. He didn't want to be overly harsh or make things too painful. And he knew that a divorce was legal for him in this situation. He would try to do it quietly, but nevertheless, this man knew his rights, and he was prepared to claim them. He was a righteous man who wanted a righteous wife. He knew that God was the author of covenants, and God doesn't break covenants. Human beings, of course, can break covenants and do. And that is why we know back in Deuteronomy 24, Moses provided in the law that if some, the the phrase is, some indecency is found between a husband or a wife with the other, that a divorce was allowable. Now, Clearly, the interpretation of that in Scripture, and this is in compressing a lot into a small frame, but the idea was that that wasn't God's original idea. It wasn't God's good pleasure, but God knew that people had hard hearts and were sinful and allowed for this. In fact, we have the adult Jesus in Matthew 19 giving a commentary on Deuteronomy 24 and saying, yes, for the hardness of human hearts, Moses allowed that, and tacitly, implicitly, Jesus seems to say, that is allowed. Infidelity 
in marriage is one of the grounds. And later we have the ground of uh, desertion in 1 Corinthians 7. So here's Jesus as an adult saying, if indeed someone like my mother was guilty of infidelity, she can be divorced. And it's a ground, a legitimate way to, to separate. Now secondly, let's go to Matthew one twenty and read here. As Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A second point here is that God intervened to protect this crucial historic marriage as a model for all time. He wasn't just providing a good place for his son to dwell, I believe he was throwing the spotlight on marriage in this crucial situation. It may not seem like a major part of the passage, but I would ask you to notice the little expression that Joseph considered the matter. He stopped to think. He turned it over in his mind. Perhaps he sought the advice of some wise elders or relatives, he certainly would have prayed about it as a righteous man. He said, Lord, what should I do? I'm I'm deeply disappointed. I cannot believe what Mary is telling me. How should I approach this? He did not. What he did not do was to rush off and say, aha, this is terrible, but I have rights. I claim my rights. I'm out of here. He didn't react that way. He stopped and he thought in a listening posture, and it was in that posture that God spoke. Now, we wouldn't suggest to you that God is going to send an angel to give you special guidance in your dreams. Joseph lived in a time when the Scriptures were not complete, and God used this form of special revelation. By the way, it's the first of three dreams that guided him. There are two more in chapter 2 that were crucial as well. But the point here is that Joseph was listening for and seeking the wisdom of God, and he found it. God spoke. We don't need this special revelation in the same way. We have God's finished word. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It does and will guide us as we pray our way through. The Lord guides people who come to him thoughtfully and listening as Joseph did. But then you see The great thing is that beyond all reasonable, you know, ideas here, Joseph wasn't a rationalist here. He knew how babies came into the world. And he certainly knew the the way in which babies needed a sexual union to be born that was true 99.9999999999% of the time. And it would only be some utterly miraculous, supernatural intervention of God that Mary could be pregnant otherwise. But despite those percentages, Joseph believed the Lord, and he acted on what was revealed to him. That is what surprises me here so much. Joseph wasn't a scholar. He wasn't a college graduate. He wasn't, you know, a rabbi. He was a carpenter. He was a man with broken fingernails and dirty hands, who used tools with skill. But he was a man who listened to God. It's always impressed me that nowhere in the little part of Scripture that Joseph does appear in 
does he speak any word? You show me the text where Joseph says anything. He never speaks of any, of course, he had a voice, I assume, but we never hear it. He's the silent, listening, obedient servant of God, a man of action, who, when he was sure God spoke, carried out what God asked him to do. In that sense, to me, he's a biblical hero. He belongs to the husband's hall of fame, really. He established this marriage, taking Mary as his wife. And notice, too, we assume taking her as his wife means the wedding happened. Maybe it happened sooner than was originally planned, but it happened, and then he was her husband, and they would be living together. But it says he knew her not. He restrained himself in the presence of this sacred work of God until Jesus was born. I believe the Lord gave us this humble marriage as a model. It's a model of our calling in marriage to self-sacrifice on behalf of our spouse. You see, Joseph didn't assert his rights. He had them. And he couldn't have been blamed if he did assert them and did do what the law required or allowed. But he didn't say, oh, look, I'm wronged here. I need to be fulfilled in this marriage. I can never be fulfilled with a woman like this. No. In fact, he not only acted to carry the marriage out, but think about it. Joseph would probably be thought the father of Jesus. In fact, there's evidence later on when people mockingly referred to Jesus as son of Joseph and so on, and maybe implied that they knew something a little bit off about how he came into the world. Nazareth was a very small town, and people knew one another's business. You try to think about what was talked about over the back fences. (laughs) You You can get it. Mary's name was down here. Oh, but, you know, it must have been Joseph because, look, he did marry her. And think about the fact, this is a small businessman. If you have a small private business, I know my son-in-law's business as a contractor depends on word of mouth, people saying, oh, he does good work, and I refer him to you, and so on. Well, if Joseph is on the blacklist at the synagogue, how's it even going to affect profits and his livelihood? But he defied those things. He sacrificed those things and said, my high calling is to stand by Mary and to sacrifice to be her loving husband. And so he did this, and he went forward from that point on, loving his wife well. Why could he do that? Because it had been revealed to him that this child to be born was a sacred child who would be God with us, Emmanuel. El is the name of God. God with us. Jesus, meaning God saves. Think of it. It was this carpenter that gave Jesus his name. Fathers named their children. Joseph carried that out obediently. What a man he was in his silent but obedient way. I'm going to give you just two practical lessons learned from this today. God acted here to repair a key human marriage, I believe, to form this living, one-flesh family castle in which Jesus the Savior could be born and nurtured towards maturity. He gave us a showcase marriage here because he believes in marriage. 
He's the author of it. He's the perfecter of it. He's the enabler of it. Marriage is God's design for a mysterious but wonderful human encounter that can be like no other. Ideally, a husband and a wife meet as near strangers, and in that one other person who's so other than what I am, you see, that's why same-sex marriage is ridiculous. The person is not other in any way. It's not, not biblical in any sense. A husband and a wife find in the other person someone who can be knitted closer to them than their father and their mother. Two, joining into one. One flesh is, is a word of deep meaning in the Scripture. It's not simply describing sexual intercourse. It's describing a oneness that is emotional and mental and spiritual and experiential. Building brick by brick a castle of a relationship in which those two can be protected, protecting one another, and they can hopefully protect any children that they might raise. God showcases marriage here. It makes it clear that it's his gift. He's not naive about the way we sin against it and the disappointments and the troubles and the breakups that come. But he created something wonderful for us to have. But then we see also here as another practical application that there is indeed biblically recognized divorce. There is now just as there was then. I'm not undertaking a full study of that, but I've already mentioned it. There are the two classic grounds endorsed in the New Testament When there is any sexual sin by either partner or desertion, there is at least the allowance to consider that perhaps divorce may need to occur and be recognized as legitimate. Now, Joseph, though, shows us that even if we might have one of those proper grounds, divorce isn't the first choice alternative that we need to run to and initiate eagerly. Have you been wronged in your marriage? Well, I want to say if you're married, of course you have in some way. I hope not to that extent that divorce would be in the picture. But if you're a wife, you've been wronged in your marriage because we men stumble around blindly all the time wronging you. Okay? Can I represent the men and say that? And guess what? You ladies wrong your husbands sometimes too. We wound each other in our marriages. We give each other bruises and and breaks and and hurts that sometimes, not for a long while, other times on a daily or even hourly basis. You cannot expect a marriage that does not have some slings and arrows exchanged. And there are no hurts quite as exquisite as the hurt that comes from someone you uniquely love and have said, I trust you more than any person in the world. I thank God for a wonderful marriage. She's sitting right where she's watching me and listening. I thank God for a wonderful marriage by the grace of God. But let me tell you something. I started, I was married when I was barely 20. My wife was one year older. Oh, oh, I let out the big secret. (laughs) We knew each other for three years and dated exclusively for three years. We thought we knew each other quite well. And I, at least speaking for myself, went into that marriage thinking, I know as much about her as you could possibly know. I know this is a wonderful person. I love her. She's beautiful. She's smart. She likes me incredibly enough. 
there, everything's just going to be beautifully smooth sailing. Well, we've had a, a good marriage. We, we don't throw things at each other or anything like that. But, but have there been slings and arrows and bumps and bruises? Of course there have been. On a sometimes daily basis because she's living with me. But out of a one flesh intent of God, the castle's been built stone by stone by stone for 45 years. The castle's strong. I thank God. I thank God. I have to thank God because it wasn't me. And in the final analysis, I have to say, here's what I would tell any couple. I think we have some, I know we have at least a few engaged couples here. You can't help but come to the altar. Maybe it'll be right here. You can't help but come to that place ready for vows and be naive. You will be naive, let me tell you. There isn't any way you can get married without a certain naivete before the fact. But I hope that within three days of the end of the honeymoon, you begin to learn this. Marriage is not about the feeling of love. If someone comes to a counselor and says, I don't feel that I love him anymore, the counselor ought to be rude and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because feeling is not marriage. Marriage is covenant. Marriage is sacrificial commitment to a covenant. It's not about your personal self-fulfillment or how you feel about the situation. It's about God calling you, as he called Joseph, to go to the altar and sacrifice his own prerogatives and rights to obey God and love his wife well. God is calling people into marriage who will listen. Listen to his word and his plan. Who will keep covenant to one person until the death of that other person. That's a hard thing. It takes work. But its rewards can be wonderfully sweet. A wonderful marriage was created on the first Christmas. And the meaning of it is shown here was not sexual intimacy because Joseph had no problem abstaining from that for a while. It's not just companionship with your best friend, although it's great if you can say, my wife is my best friend, but marriage is more about, is about more than friendship. It's not just about childbearing, although each of those things, sexual intimacy, companionship, childbearing, are all part of the fulfillments that are in marriage. It's really about covenant. It's about commitment. It's about obedience to the calling of God at a cost to yourself. And guess what? God says what Joseph did pictured what his adopted son, Jesus, would do in going to the cross for his church. So if your marriage seems to be torn somehow, maybe even very badly, your God stands ready to forgive, to guide, and to heal by his grace. I promise you, he does. Father, I ask, I know there's marital pain in this room. It would be unbelievable if there was not with this many people. I know there are couples on the verge of marriage in this room. There may be young people dating who haven't 
gotten quite to that stage yet. There are newly married folks in this room. There are single folks in this room, and their lives are blessed and honored before you too. But I pray, O oh God, that we would not exempt marriage from that which we bring before you to confess our faults and our wrongs, to sacrifice and lay ourselves down after the model of Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. Thank you for silent Joseph, the obedient, listening husband. For Jesus' sake, amen.